Welcome to Obsessed Show, a podcast that is designed to inspire, featuring some of the most creative people in the world. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Today, I'm chatting with the one and only Blair Ends of Win Without Pitching. Welcome to season four of Obsessed Show. You'll note that we are no longer calling it Obsessed with Design. This season, we'll still be chatting with designers from branding, illustration, architecture, and design thinking, but we'll also be talking to other makers and creatives along the way. In fact, when we started the show, the plan all along was to broaden out and talk to other guests eventually, which was part of why our website and Twitter handle and Instagram are all Obsessed Show. If you're into what we're doing here, you might also want to check out my personal branding and marketing tips called 59 Second Friday. That's over at youtube.com slash Josh Miles. That's enough about season four. Let's talk about today's episode. As Blair and I discussed, His writings and his book in particular helped inform a lot of how I grew my own design practice, and I hope you find his thoughts on pricing and positioning helpful. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Blair Enns. Okay, guys, so we are here with Blair Enns. Now, Blair, we are doing a little bit of an experiment today in that we are recording for two podcasts at the same time. So hopefully you can appreciate how crazy this is going to get. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. So I have had the privilege of hanging out with Blair a few times. I brought him in to speak. I've seen him speak. I've read his books. Blair, for, for those of our audience who are not Josh Miles, maybe you could give us a little background on yourself and your firm. Yeah, so I run a company called Win Without Pitching, and it was founded in 2002 as originally as a business development consultancy to creative firms, so design firms and ad agencies primarily. In 2010, I wrote a book called Win the Win Without Pitching Manifesto that was published. That uh, a niche little book for that market that um, continues to sell. In fact, sales keep increasing. This year, they're up 70% over last year. Last year was 75% over the year before. So sales keep going up and up and up. We're approaching 25,000 copies and gaining momentum. So that's a little surprise. Um, and in around 2012, I started to explore the topics of value-based pricing. I realized through a couple of different events that I knew nothing about the subject of value or, or uh, pricing theory. So I endeavored to learn what I didn't know. And at the beginning of 2013, part, part, partially as a result of my new learnings on the subject of pricing towards value, I decided to shift the business model for Win Without Pitching. And I transitioned from a solo consulting practice to a training company in pursuit of scale. So today we're seven people, seven, I have to count. Um, uh, we're seven people. Uh, based in Canada, but uh, there's a core team of four people in the remote mountain village of Caslow where I live, and then three people distributed um, throughout the United States, three coaches. And in January of, ni- uh, this, of this year, 2018, I launched my latest book, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And so going back in the super way back machine, one day you were a an ad agency account 
exec, correct? Correct. And that's how you sort of found your way into this whole world. <laughs> yeah, where you were going to say mess, weren't you? Uh, I was going yeah. to use some sort of adjective, I think. So I grew up professionally in the advertising world. And um, it, there's a few things that happened about the same time that made me, um, that led to me starting the consulting practice that was Win Without Pitching. And really, I kind of fell in love, fell out of love with the creative business. And I fell in love with this little remote mountain village in British Columbia. So if you know, if you know the, the city of Vancouver, the main city in British Columbia, we're a short nine hour drive from, from Vancouver <laughs> and we're, we're east towards Calgary, um, on the other side of the Rocky mountains. And you think, well, you can, you can drive from Vancouver to Calgary in 10 hours. We're right in the middle. It still takes us nine hours to get to either city. So we're really tucked away in the mountains. You've got to take ferries to get to where we are. There's less than a thousand people here. So I fell in love with this little village about the time, the time I fell out of love with advertising and I needed to way, find a way to earn a living here. So I decided to become a consultant. And in the transition period about 20 months between when it decided I was going to move to Caslow with my wife and my small family at the time. And when we actually moved, the good news is I went to work for somebody else at, who owned a design firm. It was a full service marketing communication firm, design and advertising and other things. <laughs> and I fell back in love with the business again. So when I was deciding, well, how am I going to earn a living in the middle of nowhere? Um, I decided to kind of stay in the profession and launch Win Without Pitching as a consulting practice. So take us behind the name of Win Without Pitching, because I'm sure there are many creatives, graphic designers, architects, uh, and marketers listening who think, well, that's the biggest oxymoron I've ever heard. You know, what, what's this name about? Yeah. And I think I, I really lucked into the name, I think, and the name is quite provocative and it's. It's pull. It's it's our point of view on how a new business should be done, and that point of view is right there in the name, and it's polarizing. And just like if you're in the content creation business, or if you're if you use content creation or thought leadership as a means to promote your firm, um, then you sh if you if you don't know this by now, you're about to learn it that your your content is meaningless in, until it's polarizing. It's not completely meaningless, but the best content has a strong point of view. So when people hear those words, win without pitching, some are really drawn to it because they feel like, oh yeah, I want to be able to do that. And others are kind of repulsed by it. Some, some, um, some folks in large ad agencies, they just love, especially younger people mm -hmm. in large agencies. They fall in love with the pitch itself. Yeah. And I did too, you know, in the early days of your business, it's 3am, you're kind of in the trenches with your colleagues, you're putting together, you know, the revision eight of the hundred page deck and you're going in the next morning on little sleep. It's like going, going to war and you're with your buddies and you know, there's music on, there's beer in the fridge, et cetera. Uh, it's like, that's a great place to be when you're young, but at some time, at some point it just gets old and you get tired of the, of, uh, you, you start to feel like you're being taken ad advantage of. You start to feel like maybe there's a better way to do this. So young, so young business development people working in large ad agencies are completely uninterested in the win without pitching value proposition. Their bosses, on the other hand, are interested. <laughs> um, so it's this polarizing idea, and I've been accused of of uh, of um, 
you know, putting out an ideal that is impossible to achieve. And I see this all the time, even today as people go, yeah, yeah, nice theory, impossible. Well, I've, I know personally know of hundreds of firms now who win without pitching. So it's, and it, even some really large firms, but granted the larger your firm, the more it is a pure ad agency and the closer you are to New York City, the harder it is to actually win new business outside of the pitch. Now, it doesn't mean you can't apply the principles that we talk about to gain an advantage, but that value proposition, those three words of win without pitching seems harder for larger firms that are pure ad agencies that are closer to New York City. Well, maybe the the close relative to the pitch is this thing that I feel like um, very design-minded folks, whether they're architects or graphic designers or illustrators, they, they sort of fall into this, um, this beautiful trap of, well, we don't, maybe we don't have to make money on this next project. Maybe if we come in under budget so that we can do this beautiful thing, then we will get all the work in the future. I mean, how does that relate to, to what you do? Yeah, that's the, I feel like you're setting me up with a softball for that one, but (laughs) it's, uh, Oh, you hear that so often, especially architects. Oh, like architects, they're they're so they're they're idealist, right? And I'm not. That's not a knock. I think that's a great thing to mm-hmm. to have this ideal that you strive for. And but eventually, kind of reality kicks in. And I remember working for a guy when I the full service marketing firm I was talking about that kind of saved me, that kept me in love with the business. This was a world-class design firm with an incredible portfolio that was back in the pre-web or early web days. It was all, all the work was beautifully shot. All the design work was beautifully shot and mounted on these boards. And as the business development guy, I felt like I had the most beautiful portfolio in the world. And um, my boss, the president and owner of the firm, would would constantly be saying to me, about opportunities that were too small. He would say, well, let's take this one for the portfolio. Let's sacrifice profit for the work and the ideal. And he he was so far past that point of needing to do it that he was just doing himself a disservice. And what he was really doing was he was saying, listen, I'm a, I'm a creative problem solver. I'm a designer. I, I want to do the work. And I'm I'm going to rationalize why I should be able to do the work, even though it's not profitable. And he did that almost to the point of bankruptcy until a larger firm came along and bought him. And he, it kind of ended in a, in a good story. But at the time the firm was purchased, it had a lot of debt. Um, so he, he didn't need to do that. But he, as the designer, he was in love with the work. I'm not a designer. I came from the suit side of the business. I wasn't nearly as in love with the work. And I, you know, I, I love good design and the older I get, the more I appreciate good designers and I love good design and I love being around designers and I, um, for a non-designer designer, I really value good design, but not to the point where I'm willing to, you know, do it for free. And so that, you know, that was, you know, when I think back to the start of the business, when without pitching, that was a problem that I kept running into is not just, it's not, you know, the pitches, the free pitches isn't really the problem. It's the symptom. It's in the, the, the problem of which it is the symptom is a lack of power in the buy sell relationship. So yeah, hitting a few points here as, as you have me reminiscing about that, <laughs> that those days and working for that guy, but there was a, you know, we we uh, 
I remember a pivotal moment working for that firm. And I talk about this on a video, in a video on my website. So I was, I was fed up. I was in a new business meeting with a client who was asking for free work again. And sitting next to me was the president of the firm. He, he had come in for the meeting. And uh, the meeting was going well. And the client said, okay, next steps, I, I'd like you to come back with some free thinking, some free ideas on how you would handle this problem. And I don't, I don't remember what the, what the sale was or the engagement was. And in that moment, I was fed up and I said, no, we never pitch. And that wasn't true, but I made the statement at the time. <laughs> but at the exact same time, my boss said, sure. So we kind of, <laughs> and we looked at each other and I forget how we extricated ourselves from the situation. But we, we went back afterwards and he wasn't all that happy that I kind of <laughs> put him in that position, but he was perfectly fine with me pushing back and trying to find another way. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was really kind of the beginning of, of, of the, the formation of the idea of when without pitching, I started to like formulate some principles and test them. And it wasn't really until I become a con consultant that I would, uh, I would really test these ideas in volume through my clients' businesses. And I started to get feedback that this stuff actually works. <laughs> and so in the early days as a consultant, you're saying, do this, trust me, it works. I'm sure Not it'll knowing be fine. <laughs> entirely, <laughs> not knowing, not having a high degree of confidence, knowing that I'm, I've tested some of this stuff enough to know that it probably should work. And then you get this feedback. It works, it works, it works. And when it doesn't, you can almost always find out why it doesn't work. And then you just go deeper and deeper into the mm -hmm. problem. Do you find that um, some of the tactics or strategies really work better for different personality types? Or do you think kind of across the board, it's, it's good for all firms? No, that's an astute observation. Um, I think the four smartest words anybody ever strung together are these. All strategy is autobiographical. And I can't find, it's attributed to many generals, so I can't really find out who said it first. But the idea is that, that, that what you see as the correct path forward, you, you see it as the correct path for you, and you extrapolate to think it's the correct path for anybody in my situation. Mm -hmm. It's really more about what it is that you want in that moment, not even necessarily what you think is is best. So some people, I can, we use an obscure little assessment to measure people's motivational makeup, uh, that of those of our clients. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a pretty good insight into who's going to struggle with this approach and who's going to naturally gravitate to this approach. So, you know, like loosely speaking, I'll make some generalizations here, but people who have higher need for authority and respect than they do the need to be liked. So people who, who would rather be seen as the expert than be seen as likable mm -hmm. tend to gravitate towards this approach. They try it on, and that's me. So that's why I kind of fell in love with the approach. I have a very high need for authority and respect and a very low need to be liked in a business context. Um, He's so like a great surgeon. Yeah. Um, or consultant. Like when I think of, uh, uh, David Baker, who is my podcast partner, our podcast is called yeah. two bobs and he's worked with over a thousand independent creative firms. He's got, I always say that, uh, one of the, one of the things that makes him a very good consultant is his, he's, his need to be liked is lower than mine. And mine's pretty low. His is the lowest I've ever te tested. 
So he can tell you your baby is ugly. He feels like he's got this obligation to say the truth no matter, and he doesn't care what you think about him. And I'm similar, only I'm not as Unabomber-esque as <laughs> David Baker, but I see, I, is, I, I know him well, I see what a good consultant he is, and I see the personal obligation that he takes to deliver the truth. And when you have a high need to connect with others, which is directly linked to your need to be liked by others, it makes it harder to have direct business-like conversations. So in Win Without Pitching, we're, we talk about pushing back, about creating obstacles for the client to overcome, about measuring how much power or ability to lead or control you have in the relationship through kind of creating these obstacles, through saying no, through lengthy pauses. And if you have a high need for authority and respect and low need to be liked, then it's actually a fairly easy approach for you. And if your motivational makeup is flipped, if you're really driven by this need to connect with others and the need to be liked by others, this becomes harder to do. So it it doesn't make it the wrong approach. Um, and there are certain aspects of my own motivational makeup that aren't conducive to this. So I, we never ask people to be different than who they are. You, you can't, you can't do that, but in specific situations, I have to remind myself to overcome my natural tendencies. And that goes for anybody. So even if you have a high, high need to be liked and a low need for authority and respect, you can, in certain situations, be aware of that and flick the switch and overcome your, your, your strengths are essentially your weaknesses when you're <clears throat> going to them in the wrong at the wrong time. But so you can, in a, in a moment, your strength might be seen as a weakness, but you can flick the switch. If you remember and, and kind of take stock of the fact that, Oh, in this situation, my own personality tends to miss make mistakes on being overly familiar with somebody as an example, dragging the conversation into, into a personal realm where it doesn't make sense to them to take it there. So you just remember, let's, let's not do that in this moment. So you kind of have to suppress some elements of who you are in the moment, but never in the long term, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if we think about marketers or folks that are in a in a position of selling or or heaven forbid pitching, you know, so many of us I think get in this mindset where they think, well, I couldn't possibly sell a project that's that expensive or of that value. And I, I look back to myself in the early days of when I was in a design firm thinking, how was I ever still in business from the pennies that we charged early on? And thankfully, I kind of got to the ability to kind of snowball and charge a little bit more and charge a little bit more. But how can creatives and marketers get to a point to where they're, they're ready to charge for value versus just what they see as like an hourly uh, going rate? Yeah. So <clears throat> we should probably talk about some of the steps between between there. So we'll come back to charging on value because that really is the highest level of kind of financial success, but there's some other steps before that. So if what, once you've been in business long enough, you'll recognize the pattern. The pattern is you decide your time is worth X. So you're charging based on the inputs of time and materials. Let's just call it time. And you decide your time is worth X. So in certain projects, require a certain volume of your time. So you charge Y dollars for X number of hours. And that's kind of the norm for you. And 
at some point you think, okay, this isn't enough money. Either my work, I'm delivering more value or I'm worth more or people who are, aren't as good as me are charging more or whatever it is. You decide it's, you start thinking about raising your prices and you kind of like build your confidence, build your confidence, like muster yourself <clears throat> to, in your next proposal, ask for 1.2x. So raise your prices by 20%. And generally speaking, you reinvent your firm one new client at a time. So new client comes in, you think, okay, I'm going to raise my prices by 20%. And you steal yourself and you put the proposal forward and the client says yes. And you think, oh, okay. Now 1.2x is the new baseline. And now mm -hmm. eventually everybody's paying that price and you think you're pretty happy in the early days. <clears throat> and then you repeat the cycle and you repeat the cycle and you repeat the cycle until you die. So let's just acknowledge <laughs> that the, the barrier, the biggest barrier to you charging more is your own comfort level or confidence level. And let's just mm -hmm. accept that, you know, from now for the rest of your career, you're going to go through these series of steps and you're going to see at some point that, oh, the new price is actually okay. And it's the baseline and then the new price won't be enough. So if we accept those things, let's just agree that we're going to skip five or six steps. Let's just skip five or six steps. So that's the first thing I would just have listeners think about is just acknowledge that you're going through this journey and you can just skip multiple levels in the journey. You can just leap ahead. So instead of raising your prices 1.2x with the next client, think about two or three x. That's the first thing I would say. Now, let's go back to the subject of charging closer more based on the value that you create. There are really three different ways that you can price or three things that you can price. You can price the inputs of time. So client, let's use a designer as an example. Client says, uh, I need a new logo. How much is the, lo the logo? And you say it's $150 an hour. And the client says, let's, let's say 200 to keep it round, $200 an hour. And the client says, how many hours is it going to take you? And you say, I don't know, between 20 and 40. So what, what is that 4,000 versses yeah. 8,000, 8, yeah. somewhere mm -hmm. between four and 8,000. So you're pricing the inputs of time and you're taking no risk. You're pushing all of the risk to the client. And the risk is how long is it going to take you? So the first thing you can do is you can sell the inputs of time. The second level is you can sell the outputs. So you can do the estimate so you can say, well, identities cost X. And you might do the math and say, well, my time is worth $200 an hour and it's going to cost between 20 and take between 20 and 40 hours. I'm going to price it at 40 at $8,000 and hope I can get it done in 20 and make a whole bunch of money. Mm -hmm. So you're still so you're pricing inputs in the first one where you're taking no risk. You're taking some risk here when you're pricing outputs, because the risk is it could go on longer and it could cost you more, could cost, take you a hundred hours and then it's unprofitable, but you're taking some risk away from the client. The, the client is getting price certainty and you're getting a paid a premium for that price certainty provided because of the risk that you're taking. So you can sell the inputs of time and push all the risk onto the client. You can sell the outputs of delivering the thing, whatever the thing is, and where you take some pricing risk and you benefit from that. 
you could also lose from that. And then the highest level is you could sell outcomes or value. So you can price it based on the time. You can price it based on the market value, which is usually a function of inputs. Outputs are the deliverable. Or you could price based on the outcome or the value. Now, if we switch a identity for an e-commerce website, you could, say, let's say, and we price that three different ways, you could say to your client, it's $200 an hour, and I think it's going to take between X and Y, you're looking at between ten dollars and $20,000. So the client's taking the risk, you're taking no risk. Or you could price based on outputs and say, it's going to cost you $20,000, I charge $20,000 for this type of work. Or you could have a value conversation with the client where you uncover the value that this e-commerce website might create. And you determine that a new e-commerce website, if it performs well, it might create a million dollars a year in new profit. Now your other prices were 10 to 20,000, 20,000. And now if you're gonna price on value, if you're going to sell me something, Josh, and you say, Blair, I'm gonna do this for you. And it looks like I'll create a million dollars a year in profit for you. How much would you pay for that, Blair? Um, you might be—you might get me to pay as high as half a million dollars. Maybe not. There's all kinds of variables in there. But the idea that you would tie, once you uncover that the value is worth a million dollars to me, the idea that you would sell time becomes ridiculous. So there are three things you can sell, inputs, outputs, or value. And those who learn to sell or price based on the value that they create make multiples of what of, 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 th of that that uh, those who sell inputs or outputs make. I forgot your question, but hopefully I answered. <laughs> no, that was definitely there talking about um, how do you get to the point of of charging value when you've been in this rat race of of hourly and trying to justify your, uh, your costs. So then what happens when, um, you know, I have this conversation of value with you, Blair, and you think, well, well, maybe it's, maybe it's worth half a million dollars. And then you go talk to another firm who says, no, I, we we're thinking this is a $20,000 website. You know, what, how do you balance that? I mean, I think, Obviously, if you have somebody in the conversation and you get them locked in and they're bought in and they sign right there, that's great. But then um, I think this is where you probably get a lot of questions about the, the win without pitching framework. What happens when there are other conversations going on? How do you balance that? Yeah, so I've left out something completely. I've left out a bunch of things in this example, but one of them is risk level. So I talked about it in the first two examples. When you are pricing on uh, just when you're selling hours, you're pushing all the risk to the client. Peter Drucker, the father of management consulting, essentially said, he's, um, he said, in business, all profit comes from risk. So generally speaking, your higher prices and your more profitable engagements are the ones where you're taking risk. So in the middle example where you're selling outputs, I was saying, you're, you're taking the risk away from the client, not all of the risk. You're not taking away the performance risk that your solution might not work, but you're taking away the risk of how long it's going to take. So you take that risk on and you get, you get paid for that risk. Mm -hmm. So your most expensive 
engagements, let's say you uncover that you could create a half a million, a million dollars in value for me, and you put forward a $500,000 solution, generally speaking, those $500,000 solutions should have some risk level attached. So you might say to me, okay, Blair, let's say you're, you're the one selling me an e-commerce website. There's three different ways we could do this. Um, I'm going to do them in the reverse order that you should do them. But number one is you could just pay me by the hour. I have no idea how many hours it's going to take, but it's $200 an hour. Number two, I could do a, I could deliver kind of a base level e-commerce website that I think will do pretty good and I'll charge you $20,000 for it. So forget about how long it's going to take me. And the third option, and I'm going to give you the extreme version of taking risk. The third option is, uh, you don't pay me anything, um, until the new website creates a million dollars in profit. And when you do, you pay me half a million dollars. So that's, that's just one hypothetical example of the extreme. It, the, the extreme ends of the equation. You can sell time where you take no risk and the client takes all the risk, or you can do a contingency price performance pay or value value based, but on a contingency basis, meaning you don't get paid at all until you deliver. Now, then we could back up from that extreme and you could say, um, you pay, you pay me a percentage of the profit that I generate. You could back up from that further and say, you pay me a small base amount of X dollars and a percentage of sales. So there's all, there's infinite ways to slice and dice, um, how you can put this forward. But generally, to answer your question, generally speaking, the higher prices that you're putting forward have you taking higher levels of risk. Are you a fan of that um, sort of bracketed approach of good, better, best? And how, how would you advise marketers and creatives look at that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I, the book is broken into four sections, uh, principles, rules, tips, and tools. And the rules, there are six rules of pricing creativity. The rules are the things that you follow all of the time. Now, let me give your audience the first three rules. And if you just follow these first three rules, the average listener, I believe, should raise their profit by at least 50%. And that's, you think, wow, that's a big number. It's like when you do the math, it's actually not all that big and not all that hard to do. A lot of listeners should be able to create multiples of their current level of profit by following these three rules. So the first rule is to price the client, not the job. That means, or the service. That means you, when somebody says, what do you charge for X? You don't have an answer because mm -hmm. the answer to what do you charge for X really is, well, that depends on how much value X will create for you. So number one, you don't have a standard answer to the question, what do you charge for X? That really depends on how much value X will create for the client. Rule number two, is to always offer options. And this is what you're talking about, this bracketed idea. So you should always offer options. We'll talk about three options. Three is better than two, four is fine. Five starts to introduce the idea of the paradox of choice. But three options is really powerful because if you put forward one option to your client with one price on it, you're essentially asking the client to make a decision they're not equipped to make. And that is to answer the question, is this proposal worth this price? And the reason they're not equipped to make it that to deal with that answer is 
human beings cannot subjectively perceive absolute value. So most of life is contextual. For them to answer that question, they actually have to go away and answer, well, like they, they have to compare. They, they need some form of comparison. So they can compare to what they've paid you previously. They can compare it to other proposals they have from other firms. There are all kinds of things they could compare your proposal against. So your job in putting forward three options in your proposal is to control the comparisons. And I prove this in the book. I can make you think that black is white. I can make you think that wet is dry. I can make you think that hot is cold. I can make you think that heavy is light, that bright is dim. All of these things, if you let me control the comparisons. And when you put forward a three-option proposal to your client, you'll see their brain going to work solving the problem it's equipped to solve, which is answering the question, which of these is the best value? So you should always be putting forward multiple options. Three is better than two because of a principle known as extremeness aversion. When we're faced with multiple choices, we tend to navigate away from the extremes of the choices towards the safety of the middle. So at the lowest price, at the highest price, the client's danger is that they overpay. At the lowest price, the danger is they underbuy. So people tend to retreat to the middle and seek the safety of the middle options. So rule number one to recap is price the client, not the job or the service. Rule number two is to always offer options. So we'll talk about three options where people are tendency to retreat to the middle. And rule number three is to anchor high. And by anchoring high, I mean beginning with the highest priced option. Now, the job of the high, so if, I, if I'm selling to you and I go away and I, after the value conversation, I come back and I say, Josh, there are three different ways that I could help you. I'm going to begin with the highest price option. You might have stated to me that your budget is $10,000. And I come back and I say, okay, I've got three different ways that I can help. And I don't say this to you yet, but one of those ways is the way that meets your budget. It's a $10,000 solution. Mm -hmm. What I say is, I'm going to begin with the most elaborate solution. I first ask myself, like, what's the most that we could do to help Josh create the value that we talked about? And it's a fairly innovative, complex solution. And hold on to your hat because the price is $150,000. So I've just gone 15 times <laughs> your stated budget of $10,000. And it doesn't matter because the job of that $150,000 price point is not to sell that $150,000 solution. The job is to make the next price that I'm going to share with you seem more affordable. And that is the science of anchoring. And there's Nobel Prize winning science behind it. People do it all the time. We do it intuitively. It's the idea that the first piece of information on a subject skews our decision that we're going to make on that subject. So you anchor high, you start with a really high number, you, you deliver the elaborate proposal, or I would in this situation if I'm selling to you. And then I might say, knowing that your budget's 10 grand, I might say, okay, here's what I can do for 10 grand. And in comparison, it's this stark solution where I'm passing all of the risk onto you and you look at it and go, eh, is that going to work? Who knows? I kind of like some of the things we talked about in the $150,000 solution. And what I've done is I've stripped up out all forms of value, things that maybe, you know, so if it's, it, maybe it's an e-commerce website, but I've stripped out some 
level of design ability or functionality or access to senior people in my firm as part mm. of the engagement or reporting or some initial research. I've stripped all of these things out and said, quick and dirty website, 10 grand. And then I go to the middle and say, you know, for $20,000, here's what I can do. Or maybe it's 30,000 for $30,000. Here's what I can do. So I've $30,000 is, is three times your budget, but it doesn't seem all that overwhelming because I led with something that was 15 times your budget. Now, interesting. There's a lot of science on this. There is no such thing as a boomerang effect from an anchor price that is too high. What I mean by that is it really does not matter how big the anchor number is, as long as the value that you propose to create exceeds it. The job of that anchor price is to make the other prices look less expensive. And I've been telling this story of a friend of mine who's a solo consultant. He had a client who had a $30,000 budget and he sold them on a $300,000 solution, 10X their budget. He led with an anchor option that was $30 million. <laughs> so just try that on. Your client says, my budget is X. And you say, okay, I'll come back with some different ways we could work together. You come back and say, okay, I've got three different ways we can work together. I want to lead with a pretty elaborate solution. The price is 1,000 times your budget. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So, you know, at a $30 million solution, I don't know all the details, but I would assume that he was proposing to create value well in excess of $30 million. And mm -hmm. I also assume that he's taking a bunch of risk in that price. There's a bunch of performance, pay, a bunch of that per pay, pay, maybe even all of it is tied to his performance. Um, so the client tries this on, they have a conversation, even though they like, they can't hear what you're saying next. Cause all they can hear is their heart pounding in their ears. <laughs> they get over it. So they get immersed in this conversation about a $30 million solution. Then he says, well, here's what I can do for 30 grand. And it's not much. He's stripped out a lot of value. And then he says, well, I've got this middle option. It's 300,000. It's only $300,000, right? And who knows what, there's so many, there's an infinite number of things that you could do mm -hmm. at any of these options. And the client buys the middle option. And that is the pattern. So combine those three rules. Price the client, not the job or the service. That's rule number one. Rule number two, offer options. So think of three options, knowing that people will tend toward the middle. Rule number three is anchor high. Begin with the most expensive option. You just follow those three rules you'll make more money. Some of you will make a lot more money. Blair, in addition to anchoring, um, what else would you see as some of the quickest ways to up your profit? Quickest. Um, I think the simplest little thing that you can learn to do that will have the biggest impact on your general sales success in addition to your pricing success is learn to embrace silence. So nature abhors a vacuum. In a conversation, both parties have this tendency to fill silence. And when you are the salesperson or the pricer and there's a pause at a crucial point in the conversation, 
you likely have a tendency to fill that pause with words like, but we could do it for less <laughs> or let me write up a proposal. So if you wanted, it's a, you don't have to become perfectly comfortable with silence. You just have to become, learn to become more comfortable than the other party. And it's actually very easy to do. And it's very, it's very productive quickly. This is one of the things that, um, that I learned from you. Uh, and, and my wife knows that I like to test things on her <laughs> just to see if they're going to work. My wife has discovered the same thing. <laughs> Where do you want to go for dinner? And then she would throw something out and then I would just be silent. Well, we, we don't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> or you could anchor high Paris. <laughs> I haven't tried that one out yet. I'll, I'll let yeah. you know how that goes. So that's a simple little thing you can learn to charge more. But if you really want to get to the ultimate level where you're pricing based on the value that you create rather than on the inputs or outputs, you have to learn to master the value conversation. And so that's a, one of the rules. It probably shouldn't be a rule, but it's one of the rules in the book. It's the fifth rule. And it's the longest chapter in the book, and it's the chapter where I feel like I felt the biggest obligation to get this right. Because when you look at the number of creative firms, whether it's design firms, architectural practices, or even you know, other professional firms, engineering consultancies, et cetera, when you look at the number that are able to charge based on the value that they create, it's actually very low. And even in, in those businesses, they have a lot of them have to accept that not everything that they do is actually right for value-based pricing. Some of it is just too commoditized and there's just mm -hmm. it's very difficult for them to price based on value. But even in um I would say there there are there aren't many firms out there that can't take somewhere between 15 and 30% of their business and learn to price those high value engagements based on value. Mm -hmm. But to learn to, to do this, you have to learn to master the value conversation. And this is why it's, we're not very good at conversations in the creative profession because, and that's meant to be a provocative statement, but it's so true. And people think, yeah, maybe it's kind of true. No, it's absolutely true. Like, listen to how we communicate with our clients. In the beginning, we get a brief from a client. We get an RFP. So they, they sit there on their own and they scope out their problem. And then they lob something to us. And it's an RFP asking for our proposal. And we're kept arm's length from them. And we, we kind of huddle together and we come up with our response. So we communicate amongst ourselves, but not with the client, just the way they didn't communicate with us. And then we lob our response back in and then they vet our response and say, okay, you've made it to the next level. Come on in and do a presentation. Then we go on, we go in and do this big song and dance while they sit there with their arms crossed and they say, this is great. Thanks. We'll get back to you. Then they converse amongst themselves and they come back to us and they say, okay, you've won the business. Now here's the real brief. And then we go away and et cetera. And it's just a series of one way communications at a time. We have very little real proper constructive dialogue. There is something about the nature of the creative professions. It's not just the creative professions, but we definitely have it worse than everybody else. That's why the second proclamation in my first book 
the win without pitching manifesto is we will replace presentations with conversations where it's just all built around presentations. And I taught in that book, I talk about how creative people have this innate need to present. So we create the circumstances where a presentation becomes required. And what I'm proposing is that you get out of the presentation business and you learn to have conversations and you learn to have a constructive value conversation. Now I'll give your listeners the framework for having a constructive value conversation. It's four steps. Number one, find out what the client wants. Number two, determine what the metrics of success will be. How do you, what do you measure to determine what the client will is if the client is getting what they want? Number three, what is the value to the client of getting what they want? hitting these metrics and getting what they want. Number four, what the, what would they be willing to pay to, to you to help create that value? That's it. What do you want? What will we measure? What's the value of getting this? What would you be willing to pay for this? That is the framework for a value conversation and nobody can do it. It's not that nobody can do it. It's hard to learn to do. It's hard to learn to do because to do this properly, you have to let go of solutions. And the problem becomes when you are an expert at what you do, you become an expert in pattern matching. So you start to talk to, you start a conversation with a prospective client. The client lays out her problem. You immediately go, ah, I've seen this before. Mm -hmm. And that's the benefit of being a subject matter expert. Expert. You see the pattern. So you go, oh, I've seen this before. I know what your problem is. I know what your solution is. I know what we typically charge for such a so solution. That's what you need to unlearn. You need to unlearn the jumping ahead to solutions and prices and stay throughout that entire conversation where it's just four steps. Stay focused completely on the client. What do you want? What will we measure? What's the value to you of this? What would you be willing to pay? At the end of the value conversation, you have what the client wants and you have a price. Then you go back. Then you start thinking about solutions and you work backwards from price. Mm -hmm. So it's a complete reversal of how we usually do it. It's I'm proposing that you let go of being the subject matter expert in the moment and you replace it with being a process expert and the process that you're implementing is this four-step value conversation. And it's hard to do because we all see the patterns and we all jump ahead to solutions. When you can learn to not jump ahead to solutions and stay completely focused on the client, that's the day when everything changes. That's when you master the value conversation. That's when you begin pricing based on the value that you create. And that's when you start coming up with really elaborate $30 million solutions that you never would have thought of before. Because you weren't pricing to value creation, you were pricing to your cost, the cost of your inputs. So I think that's um, a similar concept that I've heard other sales um, coaches talk about, which is the dummy curve, meaning the, the smarter you get sort of in your profession, the worse you are at selling because you're, you're making all these assumptions. And then as you learn to unlearn some of those things, and come back to the to the client and say, well, why is that? And why do you do that thing? And and let them do the talking instead of you trying to solve there on the spot, the more successful you are. Yeah, you have to hold this duality in your mind of the expert, that you are both the expert 
who sees the patterns and you're the beginner who sees a blank slate and knows nothing. You have to be able to hold those two in your mind at the same time. And in the moment of the value conversation to let go. Um, there's a, in the world of consultative selling, there's an understanding that the most powerful asset in terms of your personality in being a consultative salesperson is curiosity. If you can just stay curious and you're, when you see patterns and you're jumping ahead, you're no longer curious. Like I'm guilty of saying, it's largely true, but I'm guilty of saying, yeah, there's not many, not many problems I haven't seen before. There's not many, it's not very often I hear something new from somebody in my target market because I've, I've been doing this for about 35,000 hours. Um, maybe a lot more now. I haven't done the math recently. So I'm guilty of thinking, ah, there's not much I see that's new. And when I do hear something new, it's, oh, wow, it's really profound. It really strikes me. But I'm also guilty of, I'm bringing that bias to the table. And if I could be curious and remember to be the open-minded expert where everything's a blank slate of possibilities, then I would probably begin to see more and more that was new. I'm sure we could have a whole nother hour-long conversation just on positioning, but um, we've talked largely about price and psychology around that. How do you feel that um, kind of positioning overlays on that or, or which, which is more important to master first, how you're positioning your firm or how you talk about price and value? Yeah, you absolutely would start with positioning um, because positioning gets you into the conversations. Positioning becomes the basis for how you generate leads and that gets you into the conversations and that allows you to bring your value-based pricing skills to bear. So no positioning, no leads. Like in our training program, um, when we're talking to principals of creative firms who are thinking of signing on, very often they, they want to start in the, at the point of lead generation and when you look at why they're not getting leads, it's because they're poorly positioned. And there's something about the creative professions that leads to this glut of poorly positioned firms. And it's nowhere near as bad as it was 10 or 15 years ago. But the thing about creatives is it's creativity is the ability to see. It's not the ability to write or draw. It's the ability to bring novel perspective to problems. So creative people are therefore drawn to problems that they have not previously solved. It's in their nature as an individual to, to want to do things they haven't done before. Um, but if you want to build an expert business, you need to be able to benefit from that pattern matching. And that idea of pattern matching comes from my friend and colleague, David C. Baker. Uh, so creative people have personally, they have a need for variety, but professionally, they have a need to build a business that can benefit from the pattern matching, seeing the patterns. So you have this conflict where the creative person wants the, to reserve the right to do different things for different people all the time, but the business owner recognizes the need to focus the business so that you can see the patterns and therefore get to solutions quicker and charge more money and be seen as an expert in a certain area. It makes your marketing easier. So all entrepreneurs struggle with this a little bit creative entrepreneurs struggle with it more because personally they they see focus as a contributor to boredom Blair, and it's, um, oh, sorry it's not 
it's it's I'd just say it's not true. It doesn't it doesn't well with some exceptions it's generally not true, um, but they're terrified of focusing because they think they'll be bored to death. Sorry, I jumped on you there. I, I abhor a vacuum, so I <laughs> <laughs> I have to talk as soon as you go silent. No problem. Um, I'm curious, what's your your um, favorite piece of advice to pass along to young marketers or you know would be entrepreneurs if they're you know, it, it's one thing for a seasoned pro to, to learn some of these things from you and think, oh, this is how I can kind of take my firm to the next level or finally get it to where I wanted it to be. But what about someone who's just starting out and they haven't really learned all of these bad habits just yet? I would say that mastering the value conversation is the most valuable skill in all of business. And it's... um. Anybody can learn to do it, but you can't learn to do it by reading it in a book. You have to practice. You have to kind of fail forward. You have to get a bunch of value conversations under your belt. And in the book, I talk about, you know, there's some situations where you're not going to be able to have a value conversation. But if you could build that skill, if you could build that skill, it really doesn't matter what your other skills are. It is such a rare skill in business. And it's so incredibly valuable because it is the, is I, you know, you can raise your, if you're pricing on inputs or outputs, you can like keep raising your prices and maybe you'll get a 10% price increase every year. But if you learn to conduct a value conversation, uncover the value that you might create for a client and then start to put together novel solutions or have others on your team start to put together novel solutions, you're, you're going to create multiples of value. Like you're your profit margin might go from 20% to 70%. The cr- crazy numbers that pe- people who just heard that number thought, ah, oh, that's not possible. It is possible. It's even higher than that, even in excess of 100%. Um, there are crazy, like it's just a whole new level of value. So I would say if the topic, if this topic interests you, focus on learning to master the value conversation. And if you can do that, man, you like just your career as an employee, what are you worth to a company? If you own a business, how much more money is that business going to make? A lot. So for those of our listeners who are coming over from the PSM show podcast and not obsessed with design, this may sound like a new question, but our obsessed show listeners uh, will be very familiar with this one. Blair, I'm curious what you find you are most obsessed with right now. I'm probably most obsessed on a professional level with optimizing my business model. And I think, um, We're, you know, as an as a designer, just speaking to your design audience, and then as an entrepreneur, we're all problem solvers. We want to solve the problem. And what I love about designers is they want to solve the problem and save the world. But we're all problem solvers. But we we get we start a business initially because we like solving these problems of our clients. But at some point, the most interesting problem—if you're in business long enough—this this transition will happen to you. You realize, you realize the most interesting problem is not your client's problem. It's how do you optimize your own business model? 
And so that's a friend of mine once said, there's two stages in business. The first is proof of concept where somebody pays you money and you realize, oh, I've got something here. And then the second stage takes the rest of your career. It's business model optimization. It's how do I deliver the most value, have the greatest impact, make, earn the greatest reward for the least amount of effort. Not that you're trying to minimize effort, but you're trying to you're trying to have the greatest impact that you possibly can earn the greatest reward without killing yourself and still having a, a life. So that's my ongoing obsession is constantly tweaking the business model of my own business. What have you tweaked most recently? Ugh. Well, <laughs> I've just, I've just launched a consulting company in Australia. I'm about to launch one in the UK we're changing some of the core services in our training program. Um, it's an ongoing series of tests and experiments. And these consulting companies, I consider them experiments until they're validated. They might flame out. Um, I'm not consulting. I'm just owning consulting companies. So, yeah, I I don't know. There's it's a just a constant constant series of tweaking. What's the value proposition? How do we deliver? What do we price? Etc. You know, in a, as a training company, we have value conversations with our clients, but we don't price based on value because we are a productized services company. We're mm -hmm. pursuing scale. Pricing is uniform. We do some rudimentary segmentation analysis and then price based on those segments. And one of the reasons I wanted to start a consulting company is I teach value-based pricing. I want to be able to price based on value. So these consulting companies are value price-based engagements delivered through my partners who are actually doing the work or most of the work. Well, in addition to um, your groups in the UK and Australia, which um, definitely tell our listeners how to get a hold of those guys, um, where else can our friends and listeners find you on the interwebs? They can find me at winwithoutpitching.com. I'm Blair Ends on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if they're interested in the pricing book, they can go to pricingcreativity.com. And that book is only available on our website. And I'll say that it's the first pricing book in the world that is priced based on the principles in the book. So the high priced option is $320. The low priced option is $100 and the middle price option is $199. And I love the idea that people will read the book and go back to that page and then see how many of the principles are being used. <laughs> now, interestingly, the most commonly selected option is the anchor. So I really should change, raise the price on that. And all three, all three options have a full money back guarantee. So if somebody buys the book and they don't make more money or for whatever reason, they're unhappy, they can send it back for a full refund. Awesome. Well, before we let you go, do you have any other asks of our audience or anything else you want us to be thinking about? Would I? Yeah. Um, I would just leave you with this. So much of pricing you think there's a limit to what you can charge and you see these conditions in the marketplace that are affecting your pricing. And like so much of life, the conditions or the barriers are in your head. 
So I can't do anything for your self-esteem, but people with higher self-esteem charge more and earn more. I can't do anything for your self-esteem, but I would just leave you with the idea that whatever pricing pressures you're experiencing, they're not out there in the world, they're inside of you. That's a good deep thought to end on. Blair ends. Thank you for being with us today and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 111 officially in the books. If you didn't see the news last week, Obsessed Show officially turned three years old and celebrated with over 200,000 total downloads. Holy crap, that blew my mind. Thank you so much for every episode that you have ever listened to. And thank you for all of our subscribers. As we expand our topics here at Obsessed Show, please tweet at Obsessed Show and let me know who else you think we should talk to. Do you want to hear from video people, from authors, from painters? What kind of creators and creatives and makers are most interesting to you? Because that's who I want to interview on this show. Don't forget to check out that new 59 Second Friday series all about personal branding and marketing on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash Josh Miles. And it would mean a lot to me if you just hit that subscribe button. Every subscriber means a lot. You can get all of today's show notes on our website, still at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Of course, all the links are over at obsessedshow.com to all the places you can find this show, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcasts, chances are you can listen to Obsessed Show from there. Just head over to obsessedshow.com. The Obsessed Show learned its very first words at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And let me know what you think of the new music. Hope you dig it.